Welcome everybody to the March 2022 edition of the CNS Journal Club podcast. Today we are going to be discussing the systematic analysis of publication bias in neurosurgery meta-analyses. And uh, today we have the uh, corresponding author, Dr. Minsan Tu. Um, please, if you would like to introduce yourself and where you're coming from. Hi, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm uh, Son. I'm from uh, Adelaide, uh, Australia. Uh, thanks for having me on this uh, podcast. Thank you so much. And um, joining him today are going to be a few other members um, uh, from the CNS Journal Club. Uh, we have our um, uh, uh, Dr. Han. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Sorry. Hi there, my name's Han. I'm a neurosurgery resident at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much. And then we also have a guest faculty from the University of Calgary. Uh, Jay, uh, would you like to introduce yourself and what do you do? Yeah, I am Jay Reeve Cameron. I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon here at the University of Calgary and also a clinical epidemiologist. Awesome, thank you for coming. And so uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Dr. To, if you would like to uh, go ahead and give us a brief summary of the uh, paper and uh, just a rundown of some of the results. Sure. So, um, look, just to set the scene, uh, we know meta-analyses are commonly taken as the gold standard of evidence in medicine. And the way they're typically performed is a systematic assessment of previous research studies and aggregation of results to produce a pooled outcome. And the idea is that uh, by doing this, uh, one can overcome the limitations of individual studies to increase power, precision, and resolve controversies that uh, may exist across different studies. But meta-analyses are only as good as the studies that they're based on. And so um, what happens when there's a common bias that's broadly present throughout the literature? And one such bias is publication bias, uh, which essentially is a selective uh, or preferential reporting of positive or significant results. And in this case, it's easy to see that if the underlying literature is uh, sort of all skewed in one direction, then even meta-analyses are going to have a hard time to overcome the bias. So this is well documented throughout the biomedical literature uh, and academic literature more generally. And consequently, statisticians and epidemiologists have developed various tools and techniques to identify and account for publication bias, uh, for example, uh, funnel plots and asymmetry tests. So to summarize, uh, firstly, we know that publication bias exists. Secondly, we know how to identify it. Uh, and thirdly, we also have a rough idea of how it can impact uh, study findings. And the second point is the basis of our paper. Uh, we wanted to determine uh, in the neurosurgical literature how often uh, authors identify and account for publication bias. And uh, we we've, uh, systematically identified and reviewed uh, uh, 190 meta-analyses. And what we found was that while a majority of meta-analyses mention an assessable publication bias, just over half assess for methods uh, for using methods like funnel plots. And however, if publication bias was present, only one quarter actually adjusted for it. So uh, look, our, our analysis is not about the scientific or clinical merit of the meta-analyses. That is to say, we're not suggesting that huge chunks of the neurosurgical literature are invalid. Uh, rather, uh, you know, we want to highlight that there are pretty widespread deficiencies in the evaluation of publication bias, which does have the potential to affect outcomes reported in meta-analyses. 
Well, thank you so much uh, for the introduction. Uh, Jay, would you like to get started with any questions? Sure. Like I, uh, so number one, congratulations, excellent paper, uh, especially the very hot topic because as a common reviewer for uh, journals, meta-analyses are becoming very, very common. So thank you. Um, one sort of specific in the weeds kind of question, one sort of general question, but my in the weeds. So in in figure one, um, and I, uh, can you just sort of explain to the audience, uh, one of your exclusion criteria was more than two interventional arms, which led to like 92 exclusions. So can you sort of explain why that specific exclusion criteria um, and any impact on generalizability? Sure. So uh, we excluded meta-analyses that compared uh, more than two treatment groups to keep our study a bit more homogeneous. Uh, so in particular, the, the common methods to assess and account for publication bias were uh, uh, inspection of the final plots, Eggers test, Beggs test, Dix regression test, etc. And these methods are only really applicable when you have two treatment groups. Uh, so excluding multiple intervention comparisons uh, allowed us to conduct a more consistent analysis of publication bias. And despite having this exclusion criteria, we, we still managed to have a, you know, include a sizable 190 studies. So that said, I, I, I suspect our, our findings would still be generalizable to meta-analysis of three or more treatment groups. Uh, and an awareness of publication bias is innate, if you like, to the authors. Uh, and, and there's, uh, you know, is either there or not there. And, and there's no reason to expect that with more comparisons in, in a meta-analysis, publication bias will be assessed any more rigorously. And in fact, I, th I, th I think due to the difficulties of doing this assessment with multiple comparisons, I wouldn't be surprised if it's actually done less frequently when you have more, more treatment groups. There's a quick follow-up to that. Do you, is, I, I, I think I, I can't think of it, but can you, can you even measure for, I think you made a point of this, but can you even measure for public bias when you have multiple category, like multiple treatment outcomes? Is it even possible? Uh, not using the standard techniques, but you can do pairwise comparisons, or you oh. can you can still do uh, uh, tests on the on the individual outcomes uh, to to look for for publication bias. But then you end up with you know multiple multiple uh, final plots and and comparisons, etc. Right. Oh, that's great. Uh, I think the audience can learn from that. Um, okay, and then my big one, I, uh, or my sort of general question is, so this is a systematic review and analysis regarding um, publication by itself. And, and it's a little, how come you didn't measure for publication bias on this particular meta-analysis? Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a, a good question. And, and so essentially you're asking is why we haven't performed an assessment for publication bias or publication bias. <laughs> uh, and look, I, I think of publication bias is relating to the selective reporting of, uh, of results or you know, positive results or suppression of negative results. And on the other hand, our study is essentially an audit of methodology rather than an analysis or pooling of outcomes. So I don't think assessing for publication bias uh, in our studies is actually applicable. And it's just as an example, like uh, if, if we instead did a meta-epidemiological analysis and pulled outcomes across multiple uh, meta-analysis, then in that case, assessing for publication bias would, would be relevant. Okay, great. And then your thoughts about the impact factor 
components of the study? Yeah, so uh, th thanks for raising that point. Um, uh, we, when we did the analysis, uh, uh, we, well, we, we, th we thought that we, um, uh, that the impact factor was negative correlated with the assessment of uh, publication bias. Um, as it turned out, when we scrutinized the analysis uh, in, in a lot more detail, uh, we realized that we had included as a covariance the journal name uh, as well, which, um, uh, which as you expect is, is inversely related to, uh, uh, well, it is heavily, strongly related to impact factor. And so there's, the, what this introduces is something called collinearity. Uh, in the in the analysis, uh, where one factor uh, explains away a lot of the variance, but then there's another factor which is very uh, you know strongly related to that first factor. But because one factor already explains the variance, uh, the the second factor uh, look it can be quite spurious. So I think that's what's happened here. So we'll we'll make an amendment to that result. Uh, uh, redo the analysis, make an amendment, and um, submit it to CNS. Great, thank you very much. All right, thank you so much. I appreciate that uh, very interesting discussion. Um, uh, that said, you know, uh, for our CNS uh, resident fellow, uh, Dr. Yan, would you have any other questions you'd like to add here? Yes, uh, thank you for the opportunity. Again, congratulations, Dr. Toe, on your paper. Uh, I'm also a student of clinical epidemiology right now. So, you know, it's very interesting to me to uh, have this and, you know, have a paper specifically about publication bias. Um, and I guess for me as a neurosurgery resident, I think, you know, even trying to do research, we find that we're still one of the specialties who can get away with small cohorts, uh, small observational studies. And, you know, neurosurgery is unique in many ways, uh, I think, in terms of how we do uh, clinical studies. So why, um, I guess, like, what are the special aspects of neurosurgery specifically with regards to, um, you know, like, why is it unique to maybe other fields? Like, for example, you included a lot of meta-analyses, but only 30% of those meta-analyses actually looked at RCTs as opposed to a lot of them probably looked at observational studies or other types of studies. What what are things that you think, and maybe Dr. River Cameron can add on afterwards, what makes neurosurgery, uh, clinical epidemiology, maybe a bit different than uh, some other specialties? So I, I suspect what we're seeing in our, in our paper is, is not unique to neurosurgery, but likely a characteristic of surgery and surgical research. And uh, so you may know, historically, randomized control uh, trials or RCTs were developed for assessing drug therapies. And RCTs are not easily replicated in surgical studies for several reasons. Uh, so firstly, for most procedures, it's, it's very difficult to do properly randomized and blinded studies. Um, uh, and so as a result, we, in, in surgery, we see a lot more observational uh, or cohort type uh, studies. And, and secondly, I think it's, it's fair to say that surgery uh, is as much an art as it is in science. And by that, I mean factors such as the surgeon and their experience, um, uh, can heavily influence outcomes, and each sensor may have their own uh, practices and and uh, and preferences. So, um, uh, look, I think these are uh, I, uh, this explains why I, I think some of these reasons explain why we we see uh, RCTs being underrepresented uh, in in this study. But at, at the same time, I think one thing to consider is that. 
when the surgeons in particular, when they make their own decisions about uh, you know, the evidence base, something that's not captured as well in the literature is their own experience base. So, you know, uh, a surgeon uh, in the hands of their experienced surgeon, they may produce, perform, you know, uh, procedures with outcomes that are far superior than anything that's reported in the literature. So that's something to take into account as well. Dr. River Cameron, as a neurosurgeon and a clinical epidemiologist with years of experience, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, no, I thought I, in the paper, I forget where it was, yeah, maybe in the introduction or maybe it was in the discussion, they discussed about like a, a specific vascular neurosurgery. And I thought that was a pretty good explanation. I mean, number one, you're always going to have a publication bias. I mean, there's always going to be a positivity bias because like you wouldn't, if you know something to be negative, you wouldn't study it, you know? So you're, the choice is between neutral to positive. So there's just science in general has that bias. Um, but yeah, I think we are at high risk. I, I think more importantly, what the scary one is if people are actually doing studies, especially in academic centers with residents and the resident works really hard and gets a publication ready. And then it didn't go the way the surgeon thought and they shelf it or, bar or bury it. Um, that That's the type of publication bias we got to eliminate, so. And I won't try to completely answer my own question, but um, my, my partner is in general surgery. And I think I agree with your point, Dr. Toe, but I do think that neurosurgery uh, has extra procedures that are just a little bit more rare. Um, Cause like he always complains all the time that it's impossible to publish anything that's like an observational study, whereas I can sometimes you know get away with it. Uh, so I think there is that element that we, it, they do a lot more common surgeries in some sense. Sure. Um, and I guess moving on to my next question, it will be interesting as, you know, someone submitting to uh, CNS and Dr. River Camera, who obviously reviews a lot of papers for both of you. Do you think journals uh, and I guess the, uh, the editor in chief should be seeking reviewers with special training, uh, perhaps in clinical epidemiology or statisticians when assessing meta-analyses? So, uh, look, yes, I, I think uh, definitely, I think having reviewers with an understanding of clinical epidemiology was, would, would help but it wouldn't necessarily solve the problem entirely. And so if you take the, uh, the Swiss cheese model as an analogy, uh, you need, I, th I think you need to address publication bias at multiple levels. Uh, so this would range from editorial policies, such as enforcing author checklists and reporting guidelines uh, to selecting reviewers appropriately. But then also, you know, this is part of the reason why we have these podcasts is uh, to inform academics and researchers about these issues to nip them at the bud. Uh, that being said, and uh, you know, this touches on your point, Dr. Cameron, uh, just previously. I you know, I suspect all of these approaches may not actually address the root of the issue, which is fundamentally the desirability of obtaining positive results. Uh, and, and you know, how how we tackle that, I think, is is probably a, a philosophical discussion for another day. Yeah, and to I'll just interject too, like uh, I, I do feel pretty strongly. Um, I understand in the old days that uh, uh, clinical epidemiology or biostatistics was not, you know, we have enough to do in neurosurgery to try to help patients with neurosurgical illnesses. Um, but, um, you know, over the years, especially in, in Canada, I'll give an example that we have an extra year of training for research and people have, have, um, Magnify that and got PhDs and, and master's degree. And so now there's a increasing 
of people with clin epi, clinical epidemiology background, like superstars of residents like Dr. Yen and others. And like before, what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at, there was no, there wasn't a good pool for biostat statistics and clin epi, but that excuse is no longer valid because there is a lot of people out there. So I don't think every single reviewer, you know, you need a great content reviewer, a great methods reviewer, and then perhaps another reviewer. Um, do you have to have a statistician to go over all the stats? No, uh, science is still dependent on, on good faith. Um, but I do think, especially with meta-analyses, uh, it has its own sort of science around it. And it is a good idea before anyone in the audience publishes um, just to, you know, run it by one more person, you know, and uh, they don't have to be included as an author, but because uh, it can be tricky. You know, there, it has its own special methodology. It's not like you can use ClinEpi principles from non-meta-analysis on meta-analyses. So um, anyway, it's, uh, it's, but it's, a, it, it's an exploding field in the scientific literature, that's for sure. And uh, as a comment, and I'd like to hear what's uh, happening at your institutions, I feel that there's definitely been a shift where almost all my staff and attendings seem to have done basic science or close to basic science type of research, maybe a few in engineering, but now there's definitely a trend where more residents are doing uh, clinical epidemiology or more you know, clinical based research. You know, we have more tools with large databases as well. Is that something you've noticed at your institutions as well? Yes, uh, definitely. I think, um, uh, you know, part of that stems from the competitiveness uh, in Australia, at least, you know, to, to get into training programs, etc. Uh, and, and so, you know, there's a bit of an arms race to, uh, you know, build up your CV, uh, do more study, uh, you know, get biostatistics, epidemiology sort of background. So, yes, definitely we are seeing a shift uh, here as well. Yeah, and here too, uh, obviously I'm a clinical epidemiologist, so I don't just drink the Kool-Aid, I try to make the Kool-Aid. So I feel very strongly about this issue, but uh, but I do, I do think it benefits. I do, I, I think our literature compared to when I was a resident, I won't say the year, it'll age me. The quality of the literature has gone up, not like it has gone up exponentially. We still have lots and lots of ways to go, catch up to our medical colleagues, but we're way better. Yeah. And can no, 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 it's okay. I was going to mention it. Just as everybody said, for us, we have the same issue. You know, we have a lot of residents interested in doing research, but none of them is much so wanting to go to the lab. They kind of want to focus more on these clinical, you know, epidemiological studies. So I agree. I guess, Dr. River Camber, what do you think is the gap between neurosurgery and our medicine colleagues in terms of like the quality still? Well, I think on an individual basis, I think one-on-one, -on -one, our, our residents, fellows, recent graduates have way more um, statistical knowledge and all this. It's just more, um, we're just late to the party, to be honest. We're about 25 years late to the party while they were all doing randomized control studies in, in, uh, in cardiology and, and developing the rules of cohort studies and stuff like that. We were just publishing case series. But that is no, like we've woken up and we're catching up. Yeah. Uh, that's a nice phrase. And I guess uh, a question to maybe everyone here is, what do you think is the minimum knowledge uh, regarding like publication bias, regarding, you know, basic uh, clinical epidemiology skills that uh, an average neurosurgeon should be kind of aware of? 
So, uh, sure, thank you. Uh, look, with, with publication bias, I think the, the, the minimum required knowledge is, is you know, understanding what, what is it, uh, why it occurs, how to detect it and how to account for it. And, and perhaps more importantly, like how can publication bias impact the interpretation of results and clinical practice? Um, uh, because you know, ultimately, we as clinicians need to be able to look at these uh, the studies and the data and draw on our own experience and then make a clinical decision. I, I love that you asked this question because it allows me to say what I'm about to say. My favorite part of your paper, Dr. Toe, is that it shines a light on this because you know, most not, know, seven out of ten of people might have have not heard of this term, you know, and and then they've kind of thought about it, but it really reading your paper really forces the reader to say, oh yeah, I should think about this more when I, I'm, gosh, my residents are doing a couple of meta-analyses a year. I better like smarten up and like focus more on publication biases when coming up to parameter estimates with standard errors. So I, I really like that you shined a light on this. Thank you. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I don't really have, you know, too much more to add. I just know that there's some you know, education as far as like trying to understand at least the basics of the definitions and trying to, you know, if you're going to publish these papers, it would be a great idea to obviously have that background. And I, and I do think that, um, you know, some people do need to have, I guess, a little bit more before, before doing it. I can think of a lot of folks that I've known throughout the years that have not really <laughs> understood some of these details, but yet they're publishing, right? So anyways, it, it is something that we do have to highlight. That's why I really did enjoy this paper. Yeah. Great. Thanks. That's all my questions. All right. Well, thank you so much for everybody involved and uh, for being able to be a part of this uh, podcast. And I just want to mention, of course, uh, as far as the CNS, you know, this is uh, worth 1.5 CME and it's complimentary for all CNS members and available through the CNS online catalog. So again, I want to take a moment to thank uh, Dr. Jan uh, uh, Dr. Toe, and of course, our guest, Dr. Uh, Rivi Cameron, uh, for being a part of this podcast. Thank you all. <laughs>